Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And you know, we have a very finite brain with very finite functions looking out on an infinite world, essentially. So there's no way that any of us can truly understand what the world is around us. If I pretend like you forget That it's not as real as real can get Time can be The Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, or if you have connected with it, or it's resonated somewhere with you, consider making a donation. Even the smallest donations go to help John and I maintain healthy relationships with our wives and keeps their blood pressure at a healthy level. The donate link is in the show notes or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. did it again yep we did it again everyone <laughs> we really did congratulations us yeah. we, we did it again welcome to the deconstructionist podcast we are your hosts i'm adam narlock and i'm john williamson holy crap we who'd did we it get? again who'd we get adam we andrew freaking newberg what oh andrew freaking newberg dude and what what does dr andrew newberg do he is a neuro theologian what the heck is that and i found out about this guy from science mike in listening to so many episodes where you know if you're not familiar with science mike we we interviewed him mike mccarg and he's got a podcast and he's also on the liturgists podcast and as somebody who is nicknamed science mike religion was never an easy thing for him or eventually wasn't an easy thing for him and this guy is someone he looks up to hugely because his research is so tight it's so good it's so meticulous it's so solid and he is a neuroscientist Mm -hmm. that studies how god essentially changes your brain 
yeah. and like what the relationship is between spirituality and neurology. So you got his bio here. Let's tell him a little bit about who this guy is. I do. Uh, as you said, Dr. Newberg is a neuroscientist who studies the relationship between the brain and various mental states. So cool. He is a pioneer in uh, the neurological study of religious and spiritual experiences. And as you said, a field known as neurotheology, which is a kind of a new study area of study. Yeah. Um, his research includes taking brain scans of people in prayer, meditation, rituals, and trance states, um, as he talks about in the episode, um, in an attempt to better understand the nature of religious and spiritual practices and attitudes. Mm. Um, he also happens to be the director of research at the Jefferson, I hope I pronounce this correctly, Myrna Brine Center of <laughs> Integrative Medicine and a physician at Jefferson University Hospital. Yes. That was a mouthful. Oh my gosh. But he is a uh, board certified internal medicine and nuclear medicine and is just all around. He's just fascinated with um, kind of the where, where the physiology and the kind of spirituality worlds kind of intersect and, <sighs> and like just has found some, fascinating results as a result of, of oh my doing gosh. these brain scan imaging yeah. and he talks about the fact that this is a technology that hasn't been around very long right so this is very very cutting edge new uh research that he's doing it's amazing that we, you know with the birth of this technology that somebody f like immediately was like oh i could do this with that yeah. wait i could look into this L let's let's take a look and one of the main things that he uses, and we talk about this a little bit on the episode, are these things called functional MRIs. And I know a little bit about this from my, my healthcare background. And they literally can do an MRI that's color pictures, and you can see live what parts of the brain are essentially lighting up yeah. while certain things are going on. So you can observe, watch even. You can watch. That's probably see what's kind of happening in the brain from, you know, in a, you know electrostimulation kind of standpoint, neurochemistry kind of standpoint, like what's lighting up on these functional MRIs. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And using that to explore the idea of spirituality, mysticism, spiritual and religious experience, all these kinds of things. And actually, because he's a neuroscientist and a researcher, knows kind of how to do that so that it is the work has a great deal of integrity mm. like i i think if there's one thing i can say everybody listen up to this guy and know that this is not some blogger this is not some not that that's bad but this right. this is backed with research yeah these are not opinions these are not just theories his stuff is backed by like insane research yeah it's amazing he, I mean, he's an extremely well-respected uh, scientist in, in the field. And the interesting thing is he's not, uh, as, as I believe he talks about in the interview, he's not a particularly religious person. Um, he, he, he's just curious and intrigued by uh, kind of the results that he's getting. He's fascinated with, with uh, you know, the, kind of these religious spiritual experiences and how it affects the brain. And yes. as he says, like, this research is only going to uh, yield more results and become more interesting as time goes on. So 10, 20 years from now, um, we may, you know, discover even more information that kind of links the two together. Absolutely. So I, I think it's very interesting because, you know, he's very open to all of these various possibilities, you know, um, and, and from a scientific, scientific perspective, he's literally just going where the results lead him. 
So it's it's just interesting from that perspective because you know he's not he doesn't come in with any particular bias. No, he's just going where the results lead, which is kind of what we're advocating for a lot of times in yeah. life. I think there's this undue pressure that a lot of people feel, and this is this is why maybe they congregate around a name like the deconstructionists. It's like I've always been told it has to be this way, and I know that I'm coming to this with an enormous confirmation bias out mm. uh, out of the gates. What would happen if I just asked questions and see where the questions take me? And I think that scares people a lot of times. Oh, for sure. But to, you know, to quote Krista Tippett, who we I can't unbelievably just had on the podcast recently. <laughs> Thank you, Krista. To quote her, if God is real, friends, listeners, if God is real, then we should not be scared where our search takes us where our questions take us i mean that's what we're all about here and that's why i like dr newberg's work because he's literally just asking questions using metrics and instruments seeing where it goes and talking about it along the way you never feel like he's trying to advance an agenda one way or the other unless he's trying to deal with something he finds very very unhealthy so right. two things that he highlights in the book that i read which is a fantastic book it's called how god changes your brain just real quick and then we'll roll tape on this is Two things he kind of finds a little bit unhealthy is sort of the the new atheism. He he kind of he, he kind of debunks that just a little bit. Uh, you know the Hitchens Dawkins um, respects these guys a lot, but thinks that this overreaction is you know a little bit unhealthy and demonstrates a bias of their own. But then he talks a lot about the fundamentalist kind of wrathful God. Like he has a whole chapter that's like, what happens to your brain when God gets mad? Yeah, and it's he kind of he pulls no punches. Because he literally just is going where the research takes us and asking questions and following it to the end. Man, I just, this was such a fun interview because it's so unlike anything we've done before. Yeah. And I, I think uh, if, if we had a theme to the summer, not only would it be the summer of, of power, female voices. No doubt. But it would also be the summer of just really kind of unique interviews. We have... So many things in oh, store. Oh, man. Interviews we've already done, interviews that we have on the docket. Um, the rest of 2016 is pretty much mapped out for us. And uh, we just have some really cool treats that are coming up that we're really excited to share with you guys. And Treats you indeed. No idea how hard it is to sit on some of these and not talk about it. Oh, dude. But uh, we think you're really going to like it. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I think you're going to love this one to start off with. And um, I can think of no... Uh, no better way to introduce this guy than just let him speak for himself. Roll tape on this. All right. Without further ado, Dr. Andrew, Andrew freaking Newberg. Don't worry, this is Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Uh, we are with. Oh, were you saying that to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we've had that happen twice now. <laughs> Dang it! Both with scientists. <laughs> I am sorry. I, I will now respond. Okay. Okay. Hey, that's sorry okay. Sorry about that. I thought I thought that was sort of like a general introduction, and then you were gonna. <laughs> we we do that in. on purpose because it's such a great icebreaker. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Loosens everybody up. So. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, I'm ready now for you. Excellent. Well, we are we are here with uh, Dr. Andrew Newberg, and uh, um, Dr. Newberg, welcome, and uh, we are so excited to have you on. Um, we really feel like you have this really interesting 
unique background that you that you bring to the podcast, and I think a lot of people who who uh, listen to our show are are gonna take a lot away from it. Um, Thank you. One of the things that that we like to do to to kind of start off is if you could um, kind of tell us a little bit about uh, your background. Um, kind of, uh, you know, did you grow up in a particularly religious um, upbringing, and um, what kind of led you into the to the work that you do today? Sure. Well, actually, I mean, I was born and brought up in a, uh, a Reformed Jewish uh, household. We were not particularly religious, um, uh, although I was bar mitzvahed. But um, it was it was a very open ended kind of uh, perspective on religion and spirituality. My parents, fortunately, were uh, always encouraging me to ask a lot of questions about things, mm. and I had a lot of questions about things. So as I as I grew up, I was trying to understand. Uh, the nature of reality, how we understood reality. I, I think part of what was particularly troublesome to me was, you know, why did we have different, why are there different religions? Why are there different political systems, different moral beliefs when we're all looking theoretically at the same world? And how do we come away with such different ideas about that world? So mm. as I, as I started to explore that, to me, science made a lot of sense. And I thought there was a lot of logic behind science and the idea of trying to use science as a way of understanding the answer to those questions would be very helpful. And, and of course, I certainly thought that the human brain was a, as a key element to that because it's the brain that helps us to, to think about all the things about reality and to experience it. So I, I got very interested in understanding the brain and, and the nature of consciousness and so forth. As I got up into college, um, I think I started to realize that while science had a lot, great, a lot of things to say about the world around us and was great at helping to explain different phenomena, there were certain limitations that it had, especially when it came to the human understanding of the world around us and our subjective experiences of the world, uh, what consciousness was, there seemed to be this kind of gap in our ability to answer those kind of big questions about the nature of reality. So I started to explore other types of religious traditions. I took courses in philosophy and comparative religion. And, um, and, and all this was sort of swirling around as I entered into medical school. And uh, in medical school, I was at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. Uh, I had the very good fortune to meet two people who would be, go on to become my mentors. Uh, one of them was a Dr. Abbas Alavi, who was a, an imaging guy. And so we, used to, we started to do a lot of brain imaging work together. And I, I started to learn how to use brain scans to help us tell something about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and depression and so forth. And I also connected with a gentleman named Eugene DeQuilly, who was a psychiatrist and also an anthropologist by training. He had a PhD in anthropology. And uh, he and I started, he had been answer, asking these kinds of questions as well about the nature of religious experience and, and the, uh, the various beliefs and practices that people have and how they relate to the brain. But what he was doing was all very theoretical. And being able to suddenly realize, I said, well, gee, you know, if we're, if we're studying people's brains using these brain scans, maybe we can study their brains while they're engaging in some kind of religious or spiritual activity. Wow. And, and that's what really kind of launched this whole endeavor of trying to understand that. And it was part, you know, it's uh, been incorporated into, I guess, a field that sometimes people refer to as neurotheology uh, as a way of trying to see what that relationship is between the brain and our religious and spiritual selves. But for me, the, the big question, which I think you all try to address in, in, in the podcast, is this idea about how do we understand reality and how can we use, in my view, two of the most important perspectives that human beings have utilized over the, the, the centuries, the millennia, the, the kind of scientific technological side 
as well as the religious and spiritual side mm. to hopefully get a little bit closer to answering those questions. And I mean, on one hand, I don't, I don't feel like I've actually gotten to the answer to those questions. I, as I always tell everyone, if I do ever figure out the answer to the question of reality, I will let everyone know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I don't, um, you know, at this point, I don't have that answer. But I, I do feel like this work has kind of uh, shed light on a lot of these kinds of questions. It's provided some interesting new perspectives on both religious as well as scientific perspectives of the world. And, uh, and, and to me, it is, it's a very rich field. There's a lot for us to learn. And there are some wonderful questions for us now to be able to get at in ways that we've never been able to do before. So that's kind of where I, I've been coming from. And, and certainly, you know, I've learned a lot, but there's still so much for us yet to learn how to do and, uh, and understand about that nature of reality. But that, that to me is kind of the crux of the question. How do we experience reality? And what do we make, how do we make sense of that reality? Um, and how does our brain help us to figure out what's going on in reality? And where, uh, how can we learn about all the, the abilities and inabilities of our brain to help us figure that out? Man, that is so cool. This is, uh, this is just wonderful, wonderful stuff. We're, we're really enjoying reading your work. Uh, you, you know, as, as well as your partner, um, Mark Waldman. Mm -hmm. And i uh, love to get you guys both on here again sometime. And there's plenty more we'll be able to talk about. But one thing that sure. I'm, I'm curious about, um, to kind of try to put this in layman's terms as much as possible for our listeners. So you're doing this work. You're using, from the best of uh, my research in your books, you're using functional MRIs, functional, you know, magnetic, magnetic resonance imaging. You're using um, questionnaires. You're using surveys. You're using all of this data. Um, how do you explain? How would you explain to somebody that about how you go about observing what the brain is doing when it comes to religion and spirituality? Well, you mentioned a couple of really important elements to it. So, uh, you know, on a very uh, objective or at least scientific level, uh, part of what we do is we do brain scans. And you mentioned functional MRI. Uh, we've used another type of modality called SPECT imaging. For the most part, these are imaging techniques that help us to see what areas of the brain are active, if they're turned on or turned off during different kinds of states, uh, different types of practices like meditation or prayer, uh, different types of states like um, uh, perhaps trance states, for example, uh, or other types of mystical experiences. And, uh, and what we can do essentially is try to get a person into one of those states or into one of those practices They can come into our lab they can start a particular prayer practice or meditation practice or something like that. And we, uh, using a variety of techniques, can take a picture, if you will, of what the brain is doing during that experience. But you also mentioned the surveys, and that to me is an essential element of this, which is that if I don't know what the person is experiencing, then I don't know what the changes in the brain actually mean. So part of what we also need to learn is what did the person feel? What were the emotions that they felt? the thoughts that they had, the experiences that they had, and how, to, how does all of that kind of come together to make that experience for them what it is? And so we start to ask them questions about spiritual issues, about emotional elements of these experiences, descriptive uh, characteristics of these experiences, and then try to, try to put it all together. So for example, if somebody says that in the midst of my prayer practice, I felt at one with God, um, then we can look at what's going on in the brain and say, oh, okay, well, here's an area that now has changed. 
maybe that's an area that's related to that experience. And we start to tie those kinds of things together. But it, it's actually a really important point, which is that, and this is something that I've argued for in the whole context of neurotheology, is that uh, we need to keep religion religious and we need to keep science rigorous. We need to kind of maintain mm, both. That's good. Yeah, because if you don't know, I mean, if you just assume that, well, all right, somebody's praying and, and this must be what they're doing, and then it actually turns out that they're doing something completely different than whatever you're looking at on your brain scan, you, you know, you don't even understand what it is. So so that's been a, a big part of it. And and in fact, in the most recent book that, that I published with Mark Waldman, this book called uh, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, mm -hmm. we bring in all of this data from an online survey of a couple of thousand people who had these incredibly intense experiences and we've got information and we can talk about this in more detail but we have yeah. information about you know who they are uh, their religious background the kinds of experiences that they've had the conditions in which those experiences occurred and then we also have a narrative description where we just tell them go ahead and explain to me what you describe your experience um, and then again we we've used that we've gone through that data to understand the qualitative, the subjective nature of those experiences, and again, tie it back into data that we've gotten from a couple of hundred people engaged in different types of practices, having different types of religious and spiritual experiences that we see on the brain scans and trying to put all of that together to help us understand those experiences more. Man, I, I think that's a perfect segue into um, what Adam and I both thought was fascinating research that that you did in regards to, I, I think, exactly what you're talking about with the... Uh, uh, Buddhist monks, the Carmelite nuns, the psychic mediums. And I think what was most interesting, maybe you could talk about this a little bit, was the difference in what you found in the brain scans between uh, the monks and the Carmelite nuns. And uh, I believe you also brain scanned uh, uh, individuals um, speaking in tongues and psychic mm -hmm. mediums and things of that nature. But there was a difference, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we, we look for similarities and differences across all of these different practices and across all these different experiences. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're trying to put together a, a fairly comprehensive model, uh, if you will, yeah. as to what's going on in the brain when people have these experiences. So, uh, for example, I mean, a couple of specific elements, um, when people are praying or meditating, a very common component of that is to focus your mind. You're focusing on saying the prayer, repeating the, 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 the Bible, um, focusing on a mantra, you know, whatever it is, a visual image of God or some sacred object. So there's, there's an intent to focus. And when people focus their, their mind, then they're also focusing their brain. And the area of the brain that seems to be involved in that is right behind the forehead. It's part of our frontal lobe. And other studies where, you know, if you're just concentrating on anything, if you're concentrating on solving a math problem, if you're concentrating on driving down the street, uh, you activate your frontal lobe. So when we watch people in these practices where they are concentrating, where they're purposely trying to make these kinds of experiences happen, then we see increases of activity in the frontal lobe. Wow. Now, um, another area of the brain that seems to be involved in this, uh, I mentioned a, a few moments ago, this experience of oneness is a very common element in many of these experiences. The person feels connected to God, at one with God, at one with the universe, you know, whatever, whatever their description is. And there's another part of our brain in the back of our brain called the parietal lobe that is uh, that, that what we find during these experiences is that there is a substantial decrease of activity in this area. Now, that's kind of interesting because this is an area of our brain that normally takes our sensory information and enables us to 
put together a kind of spatial representation of ourselves and the world around us. So when this area starts to shut down, that ability to establish that sense of self also starts to go away. And we, we lose that sense of self. We lose the boundaries between ourselves and God or ourselves in the universe. And we have this experience of oneness or interconnectedness of things. And so, you know, there, there's another aspect that often is, is the same kind of change that we see in these different practices. Now, you know, the, some of the differences, for example, and you mentioned two specific groups, the Buddhist meditators and the Franciscan nuns, um, that in, uh, in them, one of the things that was different about their practices is that the Buddhists were focusing on a visual image, a sacred object that they would visualize, whereas the nuns were focusing on a prayer, which is a more verbal type of thing. And so in addition to the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe changes that we just talked about, um, the, the Buddhist meditators increase the activity in their visual areas of the brain, whereas the nuns increase their activity in the language areas of their brain. So, so we're able to see you know, the similarities and differences that are part of these practices and ultimately the experiences that people have. Wow. <laughs> I'm so enjoying this. I think if we ended there, I think that it would be worth the price of admission. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can't you can't see well, us, you know, cuz so it's just audio, but we've done the like mic drop like thing <laughs> quite a few times. Like this is just really really fun. Um it, we spent so much of our time talking about this from a uh, a theological perspective only or mm -hmm. you know the more philosophical perspective and and this sort of um I wouldn't call it concrete but it's observable in a different way and it almost gives new light to the same questions well that that's that's exactly what I tell people you know to me it doesn't eliminate the theological or the philosophical questions but it brings in a new perspective that we've never had before before the only way to argue that it was either to go to a sacred text like the Bible and talk about what it says in the Bible or to try to think about it rationally and, and you know, some sort of philosophical dissertation or theological dissertation about the meaning of something. But now, you know, you still have all of that, but now you have this other perspective that you never had before. And now you can say, oh, okay, well, then if I do, you know, if, if being connected to God is an important part of what being religious is all about, um, what does that mean from the perspective of the brain and my, the body and how that becomes part of that process? Um, you know, we do, does it help us to understand that process? Does it help? Does it teach us ways of facilitating that process and that experience? Um, and, and ultimately it gets back to the, still the big question of, so what is the nature of the reality of the experience? You know, mm. did, did, did the person really connect with God or did they not? Or, you know, where, where is the brain in all of this? Where is our consciousness? And I mean, we can certainly go into those areas in a little bit, but I mean, those are some of the really big questions that, that, that continue to come up, but now there's this other perspective that we can bring in as well. Absolutely. One of the things I'd love you to just lay some groundwork on, because it seems to inform so much of your work. And I want to make sure that our listeners, as well as John and I fully understand what you mean here. So you talk a lot about neuroplasticity. And could you just give us a layperson's definition of what neuroplasticity is and, you know, why that's important in our conversations about God? So what, what is it? What does it have to do with God? Uh, well, neuroplasticity simply basically means that is how the brain changes. And so, you know, throughout our lives, 
our brain is constantly changing. We're learning and adapting. We're developing new ideas, new beliefs. We go to school. We learn, you know, one year we, are, we learn algebra. The next year we learn geometry. Um, and, and we have the ability to adapt. Our, our brain has the ability to adapt and to change to uh, obtain those new ideas, those new thoughts, behaviors, and experiences. And that, that basically is what neuroplasticity ultimately means. I mean, on a, on a very biological level, it has to do with how different neurons uh, form and are connected to each other. We don't typically grow new neurons. We don't typically increase the number of neurons. What we have is generally the complement that we, you know, we start with in life, but they are able to reach out and connect with thousands of other neurons and those different connections and how many different connections there are and where they are and whether they are turning on other neurons or turning off other neurons, all of those changes that are going on all the time, that's what we really refer to as neuroplasticity. And so when it comes to religious and spiritual states, um, there are many elements and many ways in which neuroplasticity comes into play. It comes into play when we talk about uh, adapting and developing new ideas and new beliefs. Uh, we had uh, published an article uh, several years ago about spiritual development and how our brain changes uh, from infancy to old age and how those changes in the brain's functions over time are reflected in the types of religious and spiritual experiences that a person has over time. Because obviously, uh, the way we are, the way a person is religious or spiritual when they're five is different than when they're 15 and different than when they're 55. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, the brain is changing too, that allows us to kind of understand that. So that, that's part of it. And then on, a, on, a, on another level, uh, especially when we start talking about these enlightenment experiences, uh, you know, and uh, again, in, in our in how enlightenment changes your brain book, part of what we talk about are these profound changes that occur in a given individual as the result of that kind of an experience that it really shakes the brain up in a very powerful way and changes the way it works. Um, what what seems basically, you know, in a moment, in an instant, and this is very different than the way we typically think about neuroplasticity and the way we typically think about how the brain changes kind of more slowly over time. You go to school for you know 12 years, 16 years, and you learn slowly about English and math and all that. Um, here in, in literally seconds or you know minutes, uh, a, a specific experience can radically change the way a person thinks about themselves, thinks about the world, thinks about relationships, their job, uh, life, death, and so forth. Uh, these can all be radically changed in such a short period of time that it also teaches us something about the nature of those experiences and how they have an impact on the brain. Man, Woo. <laughs> this is so, this is so much fun. We just love nerding out about this stuff. <laughs> it is just a blast. So, um, one of the things that that I thought was interesting is is some of the work that you've done in regards to um, Alzheimer's patients and and dealing with uh, the studies of uh, memory memory loss over time. And and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about uh, some of the findings that that you've uncovered in regards to um, the positive effects of um, uh, you know meditation and things of that nature. Oh, sure. Well, you know, a, a lot of uh for better or for worse, when you get into actually doing research, there's much less interest in how the brain is religious rather than, you know, how our brain can be improved upon, how we can uh, help to ward off disease or improve our brain's functions over time. So, so a lot of our research actually becomes more practically oriented. And we have looked at various, uh, various practices, particularly meditation-based practices, to see uh, how they affect the brain and how they affect the brain's functions 
in a more kind of traditionally medical way. So, for example, some of the studies that you're alluding to include our studies of, um, of meditation. We studied a particular meditation program called Kirtan Kriya, which is a mantra-based practice, and you repeat certain sounds over and over, uh, over about a 12-minute period of time. That's the way this particular meditation goes. And what we did was we scanned people's brains initially. We scanned them after they had gone, after they did this meditation on a daily basis over an eight-week period. And, uh, and we scanned their brains before and after as well. And what we found in this particular meditation practice is that people have a, uh, have a, a significant increase in the amount of activity, particularly in the frontal lobes of their brain. And you remember we talked about that a few moments ago, that the frontal lobes are involved in helping us to concentrate and to focus our attention. So it sort of implies that you know, even at rest, if the brain is more active and allow, has the, func- the, the frontal lobes functioning at a higher level, then theoretically we might be able to concentrate better, we might be able to remember things better, and that's also part of what we measured and what we found was that people actually had improvements uh, of about 10% in their memory wow. and uh, you know, in, a, in, in various types of memory uh, uh, tests. And, uh, and, and this raises a lot of interesting questions just in terms of how our brain works and how we can improve the way our brain works. Um, you know, a lot of times people say to me, since I do deal a lot with aging and dementia, uh, they'll say, well, you know, what if I just do a lot of crossword puzzles? Is that good? And I would say, well, yeah, you know, doing crossword puzzles is great. But what the evidence sort of basically shows is that if you do a lot of crossword puzzles, you get really good at doing crossword puzzles, um, <laughs> you know, which is great. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but whether or not that'll help you find your keys or whether or not that'll help you to, uh, you know, remember, um, <laughs> right. you know, some, so, you know, what, what song, you know, was played when you met your wife or something oh, like that, yeah. you know, that, that, that is a little bit less clear. And I, and I think, uh, to me, the analogy is a lot like, like our muscles and like our body in terms of exercise and sports. Uh, I, I play a lot of sports and, you know, if you, if you want to get really good at tennis, for example, um, then you want to practice tennis. Uh, you, you know, you wouldn't go out and shoot basketballs because that obviously wouldn't really help you in terms of tennis. But if you want to get good at basketball or you want to get good at tennis, well, you might run or you might lift weights. You might do certain types of pr- exercises and practices that actually have a more universal effect and a more global effect that might help you irrespective of what specific thing you want to do. And I think that's where we start to see Kind of the similarities, uh, the analogies with things like meditation, um, from from my perspective, from what the research seems to show, is that meditation is a little bit more like lifting weights or, or running or something like that, where it probably is helpful for all the different types of brain processes that we might want to utilize um, compared to doing very specific things like doing crossword puzzles. So, um, you know, I think part of what we need to better understand, though, is how all these different aspects of our brain's function come together. Uh, what are the best ways of maintaining our brain's functions and, and health? Uh, you know, the, the, the short answer is, is that the more things we do, the more different things we do, the better off we ultimately are. So if we do some meditation, if we do some prayer, if we do some crossword puzzles, if we do some sports, uh, if we you know, uh, watch a documentary, if we talk to a friend, you know, all of those things are activating different parts of the brain. And the more we do different things, ultimately, the better our brain seems to be able to function. Man, so this all seemed, one of the things I love about your work is it seems to all be in terms of brain health, which, you know, some things may or may be, may or may not be objective or subjective. It might be interpretation. It might be, what do you want this to mean? But in terms of 
of neurological health, that, that gets pretty clear at, at that point. You know what's healthy and what's not healthy. Is, am I correct in saying that? Um, you know, we, we, yes. In in general, yes. I mean, I think in general, we have we certainly have some pretty good ideas as to ways in which we can keep our brain healthy. Um, you know, when it when it comes to things like meditation and prayer, uh, it, like we, like we said, uh, you know, as we've been talking about, in general, it seems to be very beneficial. Um, you know, one of the things that I've become interested in is is the negative side of religious and spiritual beliefs and practices because that exists as well. Um, yes. you know, even, even in the context of meditation, if you're doing a meditation practice that you like and is enjoyable and you're having fun with it and it feels good to you, then it probably is going to help you and you're going to engage it more. Um, if you're doing a meditation practice that you're really struggling with and is frustrating and is kind of, you know, driving you crazy, then that probably isn't going to be good for you. So it's, it, it's mm. not just doing a practice, but it's doing a practice that has, has some type of value to you, has some type of benefit, has meaning to you. Um, you know, that's why, uh, practices like prayer might ultimately be better than just doing a kind of secularized meditation. I think that the idea of, um, of trying to understand kind of both the positive and the negative is, is very, very important. And, and certainly when it comes to specific elements of religious beliefs, uh, this is really important and very important in today's world. I mean, what is it about some people's religious beliefs that makes them enormously compassionate and loving and caring for other people and, and willing to help other people and ultimately reduces their stress and helps the world versus other people who wind up in a belief system that espouses hatred and violence and, you know, hurting other people. Um, and, and both, both people, well, both types of people are religious, but they have very different kinds of belief systems. And then ultimately that leads to both individual as well as global differences in, in how people respond to them. So, uh, you know, the, the, those ideas and beliefs that are positive and, and help to reduce a person's stress and anxiety and help to help the world, then those are adaptive and helpful and, and beneficial, both on an individual as well as a global level. And, and those practices, and, or excuse me, those beliefs in which a person is, uh, has, has a lot of hatred and anger, then that in increases their own internal sense of hatred and anger, which is ultimately bad for the brain and ultimately leads to behaviors like what we see, uh, unfortunately, almost every day now um, with people injuring and killing and blowing up other people, uh, you, you know, just because they're, uh, they disagree with them or a different belief system or whatever. Uh, I think this, this is where neurotheology may actually have some really value, uh, important value of trying to understand those differences. And maybe if we can figure out the differences, maybe we can find some ways in which we can help to redirect people who are going down very negative paths into something that becomes more positive. Fantastic. That's so interesting. Man. Um, to kind of stay along those lines, um, one one thing that I remember that uh, that you mentioned in a in a prior interview that I thought was really interesting, and I was hoping you could kind of unpack this a little bit. Uh, you talk about the fact that that uh, the idea of ritual and the benefits mm. of ritual 
Um, ritual alone cannot elicit a, re- a religious experience, but requires an idea also. Mm. Um, and you mentioned that the ritual turns into turns a meaningful idea into a visceral experience. What what did you mean by that? Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So um, you know, there's we actually going back to my work with Eugene DeQuilly and thinking about the kind of the origins of religious and spiritual ideas and beliefs. Um, part of what we talk about are the context of or the concept of religious ideas as myths, uh, as stories to help us understand the world. And I don't mean myth in a, in a negative way or in a falsified way, um, but as something that is a very critical, very important uh, story, idea, concept, model of the world around us that helps us to deal with it effectively. And so when we talk about our beliefs and, and the ideas and the stories that we have, uh, religious or otherwise, um, they are they are just that. They are sort of these cognitive stories about the world, about how we are to behave, about the nature of the world, about what God is or what we are as human beings. Mm. Um, and that's great. I mean, that's very, very helpful. But these stories become even more important to us if they become a, a part of our whole body, a part of our whole self. Wow. And rituals are very effective at doing that because rituals basically take our body and essentially bring them into the the story, bring them into the you know the experience and the ideas themselves. So, when, for example, um, I, you know, just, and one of many you know thousands of examples, but uh, the ritual of communion, for example, the idea of of basically incorporating the body and the blood of Christ into you as a person is part of what makes that entire story not just understood on a kind of cognitive level, but mm. felt all the, you know, all the way throughout your whole body. You, it's becoming a part of who you are. Man. And so these ritual behaviors, and whether it's different movements or bows or drinking or eating something or, or saying something or you know, whatever it is, um, these types of uh, ritual repetitive actions and, and, uh, and sensory stimuli, uh, these really alter the way the brain works and make the ideas, the beliefs and, and the myths and so forth, so much more powerful and so much more important for the individual and ultimately for the community that, 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 that is following them. So that, that's really what we mean, that, that it's the, the, the story, the idea, the belief that's part of that ritual, which is so essential, because rituals themselves, as you know, the term that we, we, we use, uh, Gene DeQuilly and I used, was that uh, rituals are a morally neutral technology that they can be used for great good and they can be used for great bad. Mm. Uh, you know, it depends on on the story that incorporates them and what the person experiences. So if you, you know, if part of your meditation ritual is the central belief that all humanity is one, then, you know, even if you're a small group of people, you feel enormously encompassing and, and compassionate towards all people, all humanity. If your, uh, if your story, if your belief is that your group has the right answer and everybody outside of that group has the wrong answer, then as you engage in that prayer or meditation or that whatever that ritual is, then you become intimately connected with your group, but intimately disconnected with the rest of humanity, with the rest of the world, in which case you can actually foment great anger and hatred uh, against people who are not part of your understanding of reality. And I think that, again, this kind of gets back to what I was saying a few moments ago, that mm. are trying to understand that, trying to understand the nature of ritual, how rituals are used, and maybe finding 
uh, different types of rituals that can help redirect people into a more inclusive, more compassionate way of thinking about things and thinking about other people in the world so that maybe we can uh, move away from the directions that we seem to be heading in at the moment uh, with groups like ISIS and, and these you know, real hate-filled groups uh, to try to get them into a more inclusive way of thinking about things. Absolutely. Oh, wow. One of the things, just as a pastor, reflecting on some of the things that you're saying right now that's just so evident to me, if we stick with the sort of you know, Judeo-Christian uh, teaching that, you know, all, you know, God created everything, everything that's true and everything that's good is evidence for God and all that kind of stuff, then the things that you're saying, you know, that, th you know, certain practices and certain beliefs actually strengthen the brain and bring shalom to the brain, to the, to the person, to the community, to the world. There's, there's an increasing of health and peace and connectedness, you know, in the microcosm of, of our own little universe, our brain, but then in the macrocosm of our, you know, vast array in this huge community. And it's just, it's difficult for me to imagine somebody that'd be able to look at the research that you're doing. This is why I'm so thankful for it, because it is more clear, it is concrete, it is measurable, it is, there's lots of testimonies and the data is very strong. And it says, yeah, look, if you focus on anger, fear, disconnectedness, that's not good. And, and your own theology tells you that shalom and connectedness and oneness is kind of what this is all supposed to be about. Right. So that's right. That is just beautiful. So that just my own personal little like, thank you for that. I just love oh. that. I, I hope people hear that. And one of the things that I'm picking up on again, just from a, like a pastoral perspective and just interesting to me is there seems to be a difference between, you know, religion that's active and religion that's passive. So think of the the attendee that you know goes to church on Sunday and is very involved, and the rituals really mean something, and they're giving themselves to them and allowing it to change them. And then you know the box checker, I, right? I, I'm, have you seen a difference in your research between the two? Uh, you know, we we've done a couple of studies where we've looked at that kind of a question. I'm not not there's not tons of data yet, but. But yes, I mean, the, the basic gist of, of what we have found in those kinds of scenarios is that um, the, the more a person can engage their belief systems, the more they, they buy into them, the more they, they do them, then the greater the effect uh, that we see in the brain, the, the, the more intense the changes that go on in the brain. And to some degree, I mean, this makes sense on a, on a more basic level because you know, a, a little while ago, we were talking about how our frontal lobes help us to focus our attention or our parietal lobes help us with our sense of self. Well, I mean, it's not like these are spiritual parts of our brain. These are parts of our brain, and they we use them for lots of different things. Mm. And so the part of our brain that helps us to just concentrate driving down the street or concentrate trying to solve a problem or whatever, um, those turn on those areas of the brain, and that that's what they do, and that's how they help us. But if we do a practice like meditation, where you're not just trying to solve a problem, but you're trying to engage some concept in an extraordinarily deep way, in a persistent way over not just minutes, but hours or years, um, now you're really talking about profound changes going on in the frontal lobe or, or, or other areas of the brain. And, uh, and that's really what we see. So, so I completely agree with what you were saying before, mm. which is that, you know, it's, it's not just, it's not just sort of gently taking part in these things, but it's the level to which that happens. And, and again, I mean, this is, this is something that, I mean, if somebody said, gee, you know, I don't have the time to do a lot of meditation, but is it okay for me to meditate for five minutes a day? 
Um, I'd say, sure. You know, I mean, there's, there's value in doing that, but obviously there's going to be a difference between somebody who meditates for five minutes a day versus somebody who meditates for five hours a day. Right, um, right. And, you know, I, I mean, they can both be valuable. They can both have their, their place in a person's life, but a person who really is engaging it, who really believes in it, um, is, is going to have a much uh, a higher likelihood of affecting their brain and, and altering the way their brain works and changing the way they, they see reality uh, compared to somebody who is just kind of going through the motions. Great. That's so interesting. So one, one of the things that, uh, that we're really fascinated in um, is the fact that uh, we, we kind of have a very broad audience uh, that listen to uh, our show. And one of the things that I think that we've found to be pretty prevalent is that, you know, there is this kind of, you know, if you want to call it millennials or this, this youth movement of people who are just very starved for some sort of uh, spiritual experience or some sort of uh, religious type experience. And, um, and, and they're willing to, to go, you know, great, great depths to, uh, uh, to attain that kind of experience in their lives. And so- I'm just curious, and and this may not intersect with your work at all, so you may not have anything to say about it. I don't know, but <laughs> but um, what what do you make of these kind of increased studies uh, that are that are seem to be popping up, um, you know, with things such as uh, dimethyltryptamine and how it reacts in the pineal gland and psychoactive such as psilocybin and and the and the ways that they seem to elicit this kind of spiritual response. Mm. Well, you know, I, it, it is very important work, and it's something that's relevant to the whole field of neurotheology. And and it is, I, I haven't specifically done research on it, but I'm certainly well well aware of what that work is about. Um, you know, I the the way I look at it is that um, uh, that there are many ways of eliciting these experiences, and meditation and prayer is one of them. Mm -hmm. Near near death experiences, different drug induced states, um, and obviously a lot of them happen just spontaneously. So, uh, and, and there are many different pathways by which people can have these experiences. Um, each of those paths, each of those uh, processes by which they happen, to me, are, are pieces of a puzzle. So the drug-induced experiences are a very important part of this puzzle because uh, we can, there, there's a couple of very valuable elements to it. One is, is that um, they have kind of a known start point. So you take a drug and then an experience happens. So you can kind of gauge when, you know, to, to figure out when a near-death experience is going to happen is very difficult. <laughs> um, you know, you just don't know when somebody's going to die or how or when, or even if they do die, if they're going to have that kind of an experience. So there's a lot of uh, uncertainty with that. But with a drug-induced experience, you kind of know when it's going to happen. The other thing about it is that, um, that we also know where these drugs go in the brain. So we know that... Um, you know, LSD is a serotonin, uh, it goes to the serotonin system and cocaine goes to the dopamine system. And so, so you can kind of get a sense of what the physiological processes are that are associated with these, with these drugs, where they go in the brain and how they affect the brain, perhaps in, in different ways, but to create various types of experiences that may be similar or different. And then that gets back to one of our earlier points that we were talking about, the subjective nature of the experiences mm. where, you know, we do need to truly understand is a drug-induced spiritual experience the same or different from a non-drug-induced spiritual experience. And uh, again, from, from my take on the literature, uh, certainly there are similarities, but there also are distinctions. And, uh, and, and actually, I mean, part of, part of the process is that it also depends on the context in which somebody is having that experience. If somebody is uh, taking a drug as part of a religious or spiritual tradition, 
then they are more likely going to have a religious or spiritual experience. Whereas if it's somebody who isn't really doing it for any particular religious or spiritual reason, um, then the experience may be much different. Um, so, so I think part of what we have to understand is the nature of these experiences, what they feel like, the, the qualitative elements of those experiences, the emotions, the senses, and so forth. Uh, but we also then can think about what's going on in the brain, and, and hopefully at some point we could even do research studies where we can look at brain changes using the same kind of brain scans that we've already done to try to understand that. So I, I think that there's a lot of relevance to it. I think it's an important part of, of this whole body of research of neurotheology. Whether or not it is better or worse to do these kinds, to take these drugs as a way of getting to those experiences, that's an interesting ethical question. Uh, obviously, there are downsides to doing different types of drugs, and you can have bad experiences, and you can, of course, you have to worry about the potential for addiction. Um, so, you know, those those are always issues to be thinking about a little different than what you have to worry about with, you know, meditation or prayer. Um, but um, but nonetheless, you know, they could still provide a, a valuable, uh, a potentially valuable approach to having those experiences. And again, it's not for everybody, but uh, there may be certain circumstances where there's a value and certainly trying to understand how they happen uh, could be very important for the overall understanding about the relationship between the brain and these experiences. And it might just be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we uh, want to be sensitive to your time. We know you've got a lot going on and, uh, there's just a couple questions that we'd love to close with, and I'm going to try, sure. I'm going to, try to tie two of them together from two different points of your book, How God Changes Your Brain, that I thought maybe kind of linked together, and I'd love to hear you talk about them, but maybe sure. not. So if, if not, then just say whatever you want. But okay. <laughs> in, um, in the chapter on uh, what happens when God gets mad, there's this little sidebar that I thought was really, really interesting, and you must get this question a lot, and it says, will skepticism hurt your brain? And your, mm. your answer in the book is no but cynicism will. I wonder mm. if you could just touch on that for a moment, because I think some of the people listening to our podcast, maybe the difference to that to them is gray between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, well, and, and there is a certain grayness to it. Um, but I, I think that you know, what, we're, what we're really talking about there, again, it comes a little bit back to this notion of kind of positive emotions versus negative emotions. Um, and from my perspective, and, and actually I, I wrote a more academic book called Principles of Neurotheology, where we talk about skepticism and the importance of it, but, but how it can be used constructively. And, yeah. and I think that's really, that's the key. You know, um, uh, if, if a person is skeptical, meaning that they're asking questions and they're challenging themselves, they're challenging you know, their, their friends, their teachers, their clergy, whatever, uh, but they're challenging it in, in, a, in a positive way, in a constructive way, in a, in a way of, of trying to elicit understanding, then that's great. You know, that, that helps the brain learn, that engages the brain. Um, it, it brings on excitement and, and, and energy into a person's uh, ways of thinking about things and facilitates the brain's neuroplasticity. We, we grow and we develop. Mm. If, if we have a more cynical approach that is critical and negative and we're argumentative and we're trying to tear down somebody's ideas or beliefs simply because we just don't like them, um, then those kinds of negative emotions wind up causing a great deal of, of stress, both within ourselves as well as the person who we, we may be attacking. Um, so, you know, that, that's really what we're talking about. Mm. And, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate. I mentioned two of my, my mentors, uh, this Dr. Alavi and Dr. DeQuilly, you know, part of what they had and, and part of what I argue is an essential element of, of neurotheology is, is what I really like to refer to as a passion for inquiry. 
that we really strive to ask the questions. And when, you know, I've been fortunate to be around lots of people who love to ask the questions. And, and then we, you know, we get into it and we go, okay, well, what is this, what could this mean? And what could the, you know, well, so-and-so said this, well, you know, that's good, but there's, you know, what about this perspective? And they said this, but there's a little, you know, that may not make the most sense if we think about it this way. And how can we try to advance that idea? And how can we start to think about it this way? Could, is there a study we could do? You know, so, so you start to think about all these different things that now your brain is just turned on and you're really mm. trying to, to get to it as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, th th these people are idiots and they don't know what they're talking about and it's horrible. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, it's unfortunate because I mean, our, our whole society seems to be, you know, when you look at like yeah. the, the, the presidential, uh, uh, election, <laughs> yeah. you know, you've gotten to this point where both sides are just so negative and so critical that it, it, it just brings on more stress, more distress, more anger, uh, and hatred instead of, you know, what, what people kind of, you know, uh, go back and, and reminisce about, I mean, I don't know exactly how much, uh, working together there ever was, but, um, yeah. but, you know, presumably if there was more, the idea of being able to reach across and try to find some middle ground and find resolution to things and strive to truly understand things better. Uh, that to me is what it's ultimately all about. And that, that's what we meant by, by that particular, yeah. uh, little idea about being, um, you know, being skeptical, but being skeptical in a, in a positive way rather than a negative way. Yeah. And I found it interesting because the other part that I was trying to link to this a little bit, and this could just be my own sort of bias and I'm, I'm trying to be aware of that. But in the beginning of your book, you just made note of the fact that there's been a recent uh, sort of rash of, of more, more cynical books, the, the God delusion, the end of faith. So, you know, you got your Dawkins, your Harris, your Hitchens, you know, all these kinds of people who are, mm. you know, basically calling uh, religious people, uh, idiots, and right. and and personally and societally dangerous, and you guys end up saying that um, you don't think the research suggests that, right. and you don't think that uh, that's actually the vast position of most scientists or even most atheists. Right, and I, I think that is true. I, I I think that you know again, I mean, obviously, there's people of all different perspectives, so. Uh, but, you know, the idea, I, I mean, I agree. I, I think that to say that everyone who is religious is delusional or evil or whatever, um, I, I don't know if that's any more helpful than than a religious person who says my religion's right and everybody else is wrong. Mm. Um, I, you know, to me, what I what I hope the, the field of neurotheology can contribute to is is a better understanding of the beliefs that people hold. And I know that that's what it's given me, because as I have learned about these thousands of people who have all these different experiences, my take-home message for me has been a, a greater and greater appreciation of all the different belief systems that people hold. And, and frankly, I think neuroscience uh, teaches us this notion of being understanding of other beliefs, because what, what, what the whole field of cognitive neuroscience essentially tells us is that everything affects our brain, whether we move, think, sneeze, you know, have a feeling, uh, an experience. All of these things are changing our brain, affecting the way our brain is processing the information about the world around us. But we are all essentially in the same boat. We are, uh, as I like to say, we are trapped within that brain. And you know, we have a very finite brain with very finite functions looking out on an infinite world, essentially. Yes. So there's no way that any of us can truly understand what the world is around us. Right. And so you know, you come to one conclusion based on your genetics and your upbringing and your diet and who you just heard and, and you know, what you've read uh, and what school you went to and your friends and, and you know, uh, girlfriends, boyfriends, spouses, family, you know, all of these factors go into why you believe what you believe today. And 
therefore, and considering all of those immense uh, inputs into that, uh, it's not a surprise that you're going to come to one conclusion and I'm going to come to a different conclusion and sometimes a vastly different conclusion. So, uh, you know, to me, what what this ultimately means is that if an atheist comes to the conclusion that the world has no God and a religious person comes to the conclusion that there is a God, well, that's just our brains all essentially trying to find an answer to the question of what's the nature of reality and what wow. am I supposed to do in it? And um, and so with that in mind, you know, I mean, what I try to encourage people to do, and I, I've, I've been fortunate, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe I'm naive, but when I've talked to atheists, I usually can kind of bring them around to understanding that people hold different beliefs and that that's okay. Um, you know, when I talk to religious people, I, uh, I generally try to get them to understand that people can have different belief systems and, um, and, and at least to understand that, you know, you may not disagree, certainly you may not agree with them and, and that's okay, but to understand why a person comes to a different kind of belief than, than, than you do, uh, that to me is, is also at the heart of what all of this work, all this neurotheology is all about. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I, and I think that, uh, you know, hopefully as we learn more about these experiences and practices, that is part of what we will learn. And again, you know, and, and how enlightenment changes your brain to me, one of the take home messages of this survey of a couple thousand people is that these experiences can happen to everyone. They're not restricted to the saints of the world and the, and the Buddhas of the world and, and so forth. There, there are things, there are experiences that anybody can, uh, can get to. And it's a matter of, of working towards them and trying to help each other out to try to get to them mm. because one of the really powerful things that happens in these experiences is typically that sense of inclusiveness and that sense of we're all kind of in this together and we're, we may come up with different conclusions, but that's okay. And, mm. and it's okay if you came to a conclusion that there is a God and I came to a conclusion that there isn't a God. We're all looking at, at the same universe and looking at such a small part of that universe that, um, that the fact that we can even come to any kind of common ground is really remarkable. And, and hopefully the, the more we learn about it, the more common ground we can find. Man, oh man. So good. Well, uh, again, we want to be conscious to your, uh, to your time. Uh, but we really, really want to thank you for being on the show. Um, I know Adam and I were very excited to have you on. So, so thank you so much for being on and we hope that we can get you on again. That sounds great. Absolutely. So before we let you go though, um, what is the best place for listeners to go and find your work and, and keep tabs on, on what you're currently up to? Uh, the best place is, is my website. It's uh, Andrew Newberg, N-E-W-B-E-R-G.com, and has, uh, has some of my research articles if people want to look at the kind of technical elements of things, uh, and has uh, the books that I've written and different articles and so forth that uh, they can really explore all the work that we've been doing. And, uh, and as we go forward, we'll keep thinking about uh, new ideas and new work, and, uh, and hopefully all of us will come to some new answers together. I think that's uh, how we ultimately want to see all of this happen and uh, where it all goes. So, so, so good. My brain hurts. <laughs> so good. My brain hurts so good. Did you see, oh, what, that's I, good. see what I did there? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's oh awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Newberg. This has just been a treat, a pleasure, and uh, we really look forward to doing it again. Sounds great. Me too. Thank you. All right. Thanks. We'll see you. All right. Bye-bye. Put in time. And the ink on a page You bridge the distance And as close as you stand Give me hope without a plan To bridge the distance
Dude. So cool. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I I really, really feel like this is one that the listeners of our podcast wouldn't have seen coming, but it makes total sense yeah. as to why this guy is a part of what we're doing here. I and mean, yeah, the perfect example of where um, science and faith intersect. Oh, my gosh. In the most interesting, I mean, way possible. Absolutely. I mean, again, we, we never really have agendas on this show other than to convince you that you need to take your own journey. Almost whet your appetite about what a wonderful world it is out there to explore and how much work there is left to do on convincing others to take their own journey and realizing that, you know, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater and there's just so much wonder and so much just great juice out there to, to, you know, take (laughs) in. It's just, man, there's some good juice on that episode. Oh, neuroplasticity. Just the fact that we got like (laughs) a, a neurotheologian, the neurotheologian. Yeah. And like with all this extensive work, I mean, when people go to Google this guy or go to Amazon to look up his books, I mean, they are going to get, there's a smorgasbord. There's so much. That was a total dad term. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am a dad. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> a smorgasbord. <laughs> we're going to, we're going, going to the Golden Corral after this. <laughs> No offense to those of you that enjoy the Golden Corral. I'm going to tuck in my T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, this this guy was just, I mean, he, I think he was on uh, both of our radars just in terms of um, if, if we had an overlying theme to guests that we try to try to get for the show. It's just interesting guests, mm-hmm. you know, guests that uh, kind of make you think and make you take a look at spirituality and life in general from a different perspective and um so we've tried to try to have guests on who are you know musicians artists um you know theologians um from from various perspectives um scientists uh you know bloggers writers stuff like that and this guy like the work that he's doing is just absolutely fascinating um you know especially when we get into talking about his work with brain scans and Mm. And the studies that he did on um, brain scanning people who are deep in meditation, oh. deep in prayer, uh, speaking in tongues, things of that nature, and the results that he got were, were kind of like, oh, okay. I loved your question about drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I may or may not have asked about, uh, you know, uh, psychotropics. and. Oh, no, you did. <laughs> you, totally, you, to- you totally did. And that was fantastic. Uh, Science Mike's been talking a lot about that lately. Well, he talked about it on his, one of his late, latest like live episodes, and I brought that up because yeah. I heard about Dr. Newberg through Science Mike. Yeah. And so, you know, he's already been on the podcast. If you haven't, uh, if you're listening and you haven't heard our episode with Science Mike, I mean, it's one of the best we've done. It was just so good. He's, he's yeah. awesome. Uh, he's still out there doing his thing. But, um, Man, what uh, what great just new I, – I think that what I liked about this episode, that, again, it just kind of fits into what we're doing, but in a, in a particular way here with Dr. Newberg, is this should, it, this should, like, create new curiosities. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping people listen to that and go, whoa, I like – I like psychology. I like to know how the brain works. And like, I think we ter- we think of t- psychology a little bit too much in terms of like psychotherapy and like Freud and Lacan and, you know, mm-hmm. all these all, you know, young. Um, but really, I mean, if you remember Psych 101, you have to learn how the brain works 
right first that's the that was the biggest shock to me when i when i took psych in college i think i'm just going to start diving into theory because i love theory i love ideas i like to talk obviously and i remember being like wait a second i didn't sign up for like anatomy and physiology here (laughs) what i have to learn all this stuff about the brain and the neuro neuro, like neuro system (laughs) you know whatever and but man Hopefully this just opens up Pandora's box of curiosity for a lot of our listeners in terms of the intersection of spirituality and science and neurology, like a specific science. And there is a obviously now a new discipline that this guy has sort of frontiered neurotheology. Yeah. So you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Some whole new, you know, ball of whatever weirdness and awesomeness for you guys all to dive into. It's going to be so much fun. Yeah, and I I love what he said about um, the results of those studies of the of the brain scanning. It was just interesting to me and almost kind of funny because he said the uh, the atheist friends were like, oh, yeah, this confirms everything that we knew," and then the the religious folks were like, "Yeah, this confirms everything that oh, we knew." I and love he's like, that man. Hang on a second, this confirms nothing, but this is a good start. Yeah, I love that. I love you know? that because again, this is just again uncovering curiosity following the questions yeah learning more about who we are as human beings Mm -hmm. and there was a thought that i had uh, i couldn't formulate it into a question and so i didn't really say anything about it while we were interviewing him but you know since this is after the interview i just he talked so much about how religion and spirituality healthy spirituality is healthy for the brain yeah, that meditation is healthy for the brain. That community is healthy for the brain. That the idea of a god, if it's a loving god, mm-hmm. you know, the wrathful god, the you know, the vengeful god, the hating god, not so healthy for the brain. Right. But but God in general, as long as it's a healthy form of spirituality, is very 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 healthy. Yeah. For the brain, just that's just science. That's not like those are facts. Yeah, those are facts. That's not just <laughs> like wishful thinking. That's like identified, like supported, peer reviewed research so it made me think of that famous quote from voltaire when voltaire said if god didn't exist it would be necessary to invent him yes and it made me think of almost reformulating that quote in light of what we just heard from dr newberg and instead of if god didn't exist it would be necessary for us to invent him saying something more like if god didn't exist it would be healthy for us to invent him yes and just think about that. Like yeah. maybe you're listening to this podcast right now. You know, you're killing it on the Stairmaster or you're <laughs> driving to and from work or you're about to fall <laughs> off the treadmill or not fall <laughs> off the treadmill. <laughs> but whoever you are, you know, maybe you just don't see a need for God. You're just at a point where you're just past all that or whatever. That's fine. Based on everything Dr. Newberg just told us and all the research you could dive into just think about that quote that I sort of, you know, edited from Voltaire. It's like, if it, maybe God doesn't exist in your life. Mm-hmm. Just at least consider the fact that it might be healthy to invent that for a while. Yeah. To go down that road. I, I think that's worth contemplating. I, I, and I would like to quote you for a second, if I may. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Stop. Uh, no, when we first started this project, and it's crazy to think that we just last week hit our 20th episode. Booyah. And uh, and we just hit the uh, half a year mark at six months. So first of all, thank you to all of you who have been following us from the beginning. Those of you who have jumped on board since then have supported us in any way, either through kind words or donations. Like it means the world to us Absolutely. to know that, that this does something or anything for anyone. Ah, it's still that's so fun. Kind of blows us away. Blows believe me, me. Away. blows me away. 
But um, one of the things that when we were first starting to take questions in our email inbox way back before, I think it was even before we had released our first episode, even mm. when we were just a, a presence on social media, we got a question from uh, from somebody who was uh, potentially going to be a listener for us. And, and they asked, um, you know, if I'm coming from a scientific perspective or mm. a very logical mindset and I just can't rationalize um, a God, um, but but I'm curious, there's something there, but I just can't get past that, that mental block of it just doesn't make logical sense for me. Right. You had this really great response, and I, I think it was something along the lines, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, of can you consider for a moment that there may be something grander and bigger and more mysterious out there than us? And if, if you can at least kind of begin to accept that, can you at least uh, leave yourself time throughout the day um, to sit in silence and, and contemplation and, and, and kind of not really, not really pray so much, but, but just kind of sit there and, and, and let yourself experience that. I remember that. And I thought, I thought that was really good because again, we've never set out to try to convert you the listener or convince you to think a certain way. Um, we're, we're in fact saying the opposite. Yeah, no, no, no interest in that. Here. We're saying think, no interest think in for that yourself. Here. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and in so doing, we all we're trying to do is present voices and ideas and things that maybe you haven't heard before. Mm. Um, and, and, and things for you to explore. Like Adam said, um, uh, six months ago when we first started this thing, you know, look at it like a, like a room full of maps. Mm. And we just want you to come in that door into that, that room of maps. I envision like, you know, like really soft lighting. I remember that, man, <laughs> your blast from the past. This I is like super <laughs> nostalgic, even though it was only six months ago. I've, I've been in my mind celebrating our, our 20th anniversary. <laughs> 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 We're going to do some day drinking today. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I envision, you know, like some soft lighting and some really cool antique looking maps and just, just come in and explore. That's all we're, that's all maps we're saying. Maps that go to all different places, all different territories. Yeah. And it's just like, just pick a map and go. Just, and it should be fun. Just go. Absolutely. But the, I think the thing that is not okay with us is to either just opt out and just say, I'm not going to take the journey because then that means you're taking one and you're just completely unaware of it. Yeah. You just you're, you're not practicing any kind of mindfulness or awareness, realizing that there is more to life. Even mm -hmm. when you dive into the sciences, there's more unknown than there is known nowadays. Right. There, you know, science is losing it. It's, it's explanatory power. And it was probably never supposed to have pure explanatory power. Right. Um, that's just not what it's about. It's more observational. And we have to give it the meaning. We have to. That's your project. Yeah. To give it meaning. And so be be not just open eyed, but be excited about the fact that you are breathing in and out right now. You are exchanging particles and cells that used to be stars. You are up participating in our ecosystem with every breath you take that your life matters. And there's a whole lot more to who you are, who we are collectively mm -hmm. and where this is all going than any of us could possibly imagine. So why not dig in? Why not be a part of it and realize that life is a holistic thing it's an integrated thing and there's a lot of beauty and wonder and yeah the whole god question is should be less of this forceful sort of um trying to convert people all the time and more right. of a how do we how do we share this collective life together yeah and and but then also not be ashamed of what we believe yeah that would be so great if that was possible yeah man one small step, man. One small step. And, and Dr. <laughs> Newberg really is doing that work 
whether he knows it or not. He's yeah. just, you can tell this guy's just following his curiosities. Yeah. He's just like, this is cool. Yeah. You know, this is really cool that this stuff is the way it is, and I'm getting to observe it mm-hmm. and connect some dots for people. But the listener, whoever you are, you've got the ability to do that, too. You've got curiosity you can follow, and we just don't want you to be afraid, and we don't want you to be alone. Yeah. Period. And uh, along with that, um, if you enjoyed our music today, so good. Uh, it's a band called Atlas Genius. Who so good. We love like these guys are amazing. They're uh, a band out of Australia. Yes. And if you are in our hometown of Columbus, Ohio, then there's a chance that you saw them at uh, the the local festival um, about a week or so ago. Right. When this comes right, out. Right. Um, incredible band. Super super nice guys that were. Um, you know, nice enough to let us use their tunes. So if you enjoyed that, check out our show notes there um, all over iTunes, Spotify, all the other major music providers. So uh, check them out and uh, pick up their music. If you like it, help support them, and we would appreciate that, and I'm sure they would also. Absolutely. (laughs) With that, you got anything else? No. What a fun episode, man. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. We're your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, everyone.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.